Uh, today we have another edition of the Beef Cattle Educators uh, podcast, uh, mainly focusing on drought and the compounding effects of drought with a multiple year drought. Uh, today we have our uh, Ag Economist Specialist, Dr. Ryan Larson, uh, our Range Specialist, Dr. Eric Thacker, and I am Dr. Matt Garcia, I'm the Beef Cattle Specialist here at Utah State. Uh, so, like I stated, we are going to be talking about the compounding effects of drought. Uh, this is something that I think we tend to ignore. We kind of uh, deal with the drought as it's going on, but really don't understand that that next year or even that multiple year effect afterwards. Uh, being that we are probably in our, what, second, maybe third year of Some drought? parts of the state. Uh, this, this is probably something we should have focused on initially or kind of predicted um, going into this, but, um, you know, we, we have to deal with it now. So let's, I think we're going to talk about some of the factors affecting both, uh, both the economic side of it, not necessarily the animal maintenance, but that's something we need to be aware of. And especially on 30 year drought, maybe the market factors are going to influence this. And then also that range health factor that's going to be compounding. But I guess to kind of start out, uh, I guess, Dr. Thack, could you kind of just tell us a little bit about, you know, that that prediction and, you know, you, you have some data showing that the drought trends in the state. So, could you maybe just talk a little bit about that? So, <clears throat> I, I don't think it's rocket science, but um, when you look at um, precipitation patterns across most of the state, I think the things that stands out is... Um, you can expect a drought anywhere, a pretty severe drought every about six to 10 years, give or take. And so what that tells us, number one, is we should not be surprised by drought when it, when it happens. It's inevitable at some point. Um, but the other thing that come to light lately after some, he turned up, um, looking at some weather data is if you look across years, one of the interesting things is the average precipitation is really deceiving in terms of what it means. And we use averages all the time. Um, but in, in the case of precipitation, a lot of times what it means is that we have some more below average years than we have above average years. And so what you'll do is you'll have a couple of years that are significantly above average and it kind of pulls that average up. But the reality is most years, we spend most of the time below average. So in general, about 50% of the time we're below the average in terms of precipitation. So that, that all being said, we should expect these bouts of drought. I think the thing that's a little harder to predict um, is um, how long they'll last and then how frequent those long droughts are. I think the year, you know, a single year of drought's not a huge deal to, to kind of deal with on the range side, the range generally recovers well if it's being taken care of prior to the drought. So the, the single year drought's not a big deal, but when we start talking two and three years of drought, um, you know, there's some indication or some people are predicting we may be entering into kind of like a, a 10 year drought cycle or something like that. And that's a little more concerning because we'll see some, if that's the case, we may see some dramatic changes occur over the next few years. So one of the, I, I don't remember if I was talking to you about this, we were talking about soil moisture. So last year with the drought, 
you know, we obviously had decreased soil moisture. <laughs> but then this year, going into it again, you know, some of the estimates were what twenty percent lower than ever measured, or something crazy like that. So what does that what does that do to range? Yeah, and I think that's where the drought that we're currently in is a little bit different than kind of our average winter spring drought that is a little bit more typical. Um, we had a really dry fall. And so what that means is our soil moisture was incredibly low going into the winter time. So part of the concern is, is even if we um, return to kind of normal precipitation for the rest of the year, we would likely still be significantly behind in terms of plant growth and everything else because those soils were so dry. Um, and I think you're correct. I think the number that I'd heard is that we're 20% lower than they'd previously measured. And it's been a, a few weeks since I looked at the the soil moisture maps for the state, but um, some of them were significantly lower, you know, as low as 60% of normal, 50% of normal at multiple levels. And so that's very concerning because what that tells us, you know, you have to think of the soil as kind of like a reservoir and you have to kind of fill that reservoir up before the water is available to the plants. And right. so um, just like we didn't get into this situation over a single year, it's probably going to take a couple of years to actually recover from something like this. So on the animal side of that, you know, if, if we have decreased, you know, forage growth and all these, you know, decreased soil moisture, decreased, you know, obviously, you know, we're we're unable to put the same number of animals out for that extended period of time. Because if we do, obviously there's a compounding effect of that for multiple years. But I guess on the economic side, you know, if we, especially this year that we're seeing this, this multiple year drought effect, and we're having to see, you know, less time on the range, less animals putting out, in theory, less animals putting out. You know, what are, what are some of the economic impacts that we're going to see if producers try to try to sustain through this for a second year? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, what question that I've been receiving lately is, you know, do I cull early? Do I, I know I'm not going to have the range. Mm -hmm. Do I get rid of my cows early? Do I, do I sell them off early? Is the market going to change, right? We're in a drought. Doesn't that mean if we're in a drought that the prices are going to go up? And so a lot of that, right? Let's first talk about the, those markets. You know, we think back to 2012, there's a drought, but you got to remember the location of the drought. That right. drought was in Texas and that really impacted Texas and Oklahoma, right? Some of those, those lower Midwestern states and that where a bulk of those, the production is. And so that's why that really impacted prices. Right. Right now, what we're watching, though, is that drought slowly go into Texas. Mm. If you've read some of the reports, we've seen Texas is starting to hit that. And that's why, you know, prices right now, I think, are very, very unpredictable because we don't know what's going to happen with those price with, with Texas and Oklahoma and some of those major production areas. Because you got guys early weaning calves, so those are entering the market earlier. Yeah. But then they might get to the point where they might be selling off breeding animals as yeah. well, older breeding animals and... So, that, I mean, that saturation of the market, how, how quickly does that affect the market when you start seeing those guys start liquidating? I think it'll happen really quick, right? The way information moves now, the way, and, and what really concerns me is that we could have a saturation of the market and we could have a slowdown in the economy at the same time, kind of oh, a yeah. perfect storm type deal where we see a de the demand drop in, in beef, mm -hmm. right? So if we see the demand drop in beef and we see a saturation in the market, that those are two factors that really concern me if they happen at the same time. Um, and so for a Utah producer, I think we know that you know, we know that summer prices are usually lower, especially if we start throwing those all out. If, if you and all your neighbors start put, taking your cows to the 
to the, to the market at the same time, we know just because we're such a smaller market, that's going to drop prices, right? Where the supply is going to be high and the demand hasn't changed. So I think, uh, right, the economics of this, uh, right, it's not just a one-year decision like, like we always talk about, right? You can't just say, well, I'm just going to sell off this year and I'll recover next year. Right. So I, I think that kind of leads us into a, an interesting dynamic, too, because, you know, like you said, this might be the perfect storm. You know, if, if you're trying to maintain through this because your range conditions aren't optimal, but you're saying, OK, I don't want to sell my breeding animals because the market is now saturated and prices have gone down. What does that do to feed costs to maintain those animals? So <laughs> so um, that third factor, feed cost, right? Mm-hmm. We already know that we're going to be lucky if we get two crops of good hay this year. Oh yeah. Corn. The futures price for corn is already up above almost five fifty, right? Jeez. So corn prices are rising, um, and so I think feed costs are going to are going to be a huge factor. That, I mean, as we look at, oh, let's just go buy some some hay to, to for supplemental feed. That hay is not going to be cheap this summer. And then dry sending those animals off to be dry lotted is is not a probably a financially feasible option either this no, year. No, I think the I think the cost of gain is going to be so high this year that yep. just because corn is going to be I, I don't see corn I don't know what's what's going to drive corn down I don't see that it might but I just don't see that happening that with ethanol with the price of fuel right ethanol demand is high um, China is actually importing some of our corn which is a big driver. And uh, so we're seeing these corn prices. I don't. I don't know that they've dropped. So. Well, I mean, that kind of leads me to the next thing that me and me and Dr. Thacker were talking about before this was, in terms of animal productivity. If we're we're seeing a bad market, we're seeing increased feed costs. Now we have drought. Let's say even we 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 call our our bottom fifteen percent or early weaning. You know, we send these animals out on range for a period. We were, we were kind of talking about the animal productivity of that, but I think that's directly tied to the range health as well, because let's say, okay, well, we're, we're, we're able to still graze, but we're, we're, going, we're going out 45 days less. You know, I guess from the animal side, I look at that and I go, you know, you're gonna see a compounding effect there because not only is that animal getting less forage, they're having to expend more energy to go to go get it. They're having to cover more ground, correct? Potentially, yeah. And you know now you're bringing them back in, kind of what we're talking about. Now you're essentially feedlotting them because you're you're bringing feed to them because you have to because the natural resource is no longer able to health healthily sustain those animals. So my argument would be, you know, that first year you might get through because you know you might have normal productivity, but that next year because of everything that's gone on, you might lose, you know, some of that productivity because that animal hasn't remained at optimum. But now you've also lost some of that, that learned behavior that we talked about out on range in terms of actually actively going out and grazing. So I guess my question you'd be, you know, how much do, do you think that, you know, from that learned behavior, that grazing range side, do you think we, in, in a multiple year drought, do we, do we lose some of that learned behavior and, you know, how long does it, does it take for us to really kind of get those animals yeah. back? You know, Especially if we're selling our old animals. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. I think if, you know, if you had a, a, a moderately aged cow, we're talking older than five and younger than 10, I think your chance of retaining that learned behavior would be quite high. Right. Uh, you know, she's a cow that's made it in your system. She's likely to, to be okay. And so I think that remains high. But I think the larger issue is, 
and I'll, I'm going to kind of kick this back to you in a question is I think it depends on which cows you cull because mm-hmm. we know that that range knowledge is important because as you bring novel animals in, you see an increased likelihood of plant poisoning. You see often decreased reproductive output. You see decreased gains. All of those are factors of kind of introducing new animals in. So I think, you know, we've already talked about the fact that feed costs are high. You're going to have to right. trim your herd some, you know, um, so I guess going back to you is what animals do you get rid of? Like, how, how do you make, I know you can't give like yeah. one answer for everybody, but at the same time, I think it's a hard thing to balance because you'll hear some say, I'm going to sell all my older cows and mm-hmm. you cringe because you're thinking, so you're selling the ones that know your range. On the flip side, you hate to sell young stuff because it's stuff you've spent a lot of time and money developing. So where do you make your cuts, Matt? Well, I think that that's a great question because it's kind of a double-edged sword there because your older cows that are, and we're talking cows that are greater than nine years of age, these ones are adapted to your system, but they're also ones that are probably going to have a harder time making it through just because, you know, they're not able to travel as far, their teeth aren't as good. You know, they're, they're not as efficient necessarily at, at getting out there, but they are your learned behavior animals. Your young animals, you know, as probably Dr. Larson would allude to from a economic standpoint, those are your more expensive ones, less resource adapted. And while they might be your better genetics, they're the ones that don't have that learned behavior yet. So maybe it's, maybe it's that that real sweet spot of those cows that are, you know, not you know, maybe, you know, seven to four years of age that have kind of worked in there and learned and, you know, aren't really have those, those huge growth curve demands and some of these other things that are going to kind of help them out. But I mean, it really is trying to, I think when you're looking at culling, you're looking at animals that, you know, might not have, you know, heifers. I hear a lot of guys say, I want to maintain my heifers because you got a lot of money in them and they might be bred that first time. But the problem is if, it, if you're in a multiple year drought, what's the likelihood of that animal making it through after she calves, especially if there's no, no forage on the ground? She's already got huge demands on her. So, I mean, maybe you're looking at, okay, I got this two-year-old, the calf, and is rebred. Maybe I'm going to keep her. You know, maybe it's that five, six, seven-year-old cow. So, I think when, when you're looking at Colin, you're looking at animals that, that have some resiliency to deal with that unoptimal situation. Yeah. You know, but it kind of goes back to, you know, the economic side. If I've invested all this money on this, this heifer and the market saturated, if I'm, let's say I'm selling bread heifers, how much, what is my salvage value on that in a, in a saturated beef market? Low, right? Low. But, but Dr. Larson, isn't the point here, I think, I mean, you're going to lose money in a drought. I, right. I don't know that it's a foregone conclusion always, but given lower production on your range, increasing feed costs, a soft market, that all spells you're going to lose money. But I think this, I guess that's the question is, is really your approach just try to, to mitigate the loss as, as best you can? I mean, you know you're going to get hit, right? And so how do we how do we not get hit as hard? Is that really kind of the way to think about it? Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was just thinking is I don't want people to be listening to this and being like, we're just, there's no hope, right? We, we know in agriculture there's going to be years that are up, years that are, and this right. is one of those unique years, right, that it might just be a survival year. And let's figure out how to minimize those losses. Right? How do we have that? We're going to take a loss. Let's make it as small as possible. Right? And there's going to be programs through FSA. There's going to be 
uh, USDA programs, right? This is the year that you have to look at every source of, of income that you can find. You probably should be visiting with your lender, right? On a monthly basis and saying, hey, this is gonna be a tight year. We're gonna make it through it, but hey, I, I need everybody on my team to be aware of what's going on. And so that we can we can do that. And and the timing of the market, right? It's, it's, it's gonna be tough, right? You may, you may, to time the market perfect, never happened. Right? I mean, that's a, the probability of that is so low, but how can you approach this from a management perspective as to minimize those losses? I think that's the key statement there, right? How do we minimize our losses? And uh, and I think the, the key decision here is do we, do we feed supplemental hay or do we, do we sell off, right? And I think if you're gonna sell off, you got to go back to what Dr. Garcia and you were saying is, Let's pick the right animals. Let's just don't haphazardly pick. Let's let's strategically look which animals we're gonna we're gonna do it. But if we feel like we need to keep them, then we're gonna justify that extra feed cost by saying we want to keep these animals in our system because of the future payouts, right? Yeah. I'm willing to pay extra for feed to keep these animals. You a producer better be able to say, yeah, I'm I'm willing to pay that to keep these animals in my system. So what you're telling me is you have to make kind of sort of a qualitative call on what your genetics. Yeah. To Dr. Garcia's point, kind of unproven genetics at this point, right? right. You've invested all this in replacement heifers, but what, what is that unknown genetic right. potential worth? Is that really kind of the way to think about? You know, if I'm a row crop farmer, I'm in a drought, it's a one year event, right? I mean, it's, it's really, I can change my, I can change next year. Right, but for a for a livestock operation, right, those are that's that 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 investment you have in that cow goes for multiple years, right? right. I mean, what's the average? Seven, ten, twelve. Yeah, if you're lucky. Right? So say <laughs> seven to ten years, right? right? I mean, that's that's a long it's like owning an orchard, right? I see these fruit growers down in Utah County, right? They're protecting those trees, but your cows are like your trees, right? Those right. trees are what produce and you have to protect them and well, maybe we have to cool some out, but you better be—you better sit down and spend some time and say, "Okay, let's figure out which ones we really want to get rid of." Well, and I, I think all of us hope that we're all wrong, right? Yeah. I hope everything—I <laughs> hope everything we've just said is wrong, yes. and we get rain, and our ranges aren't—you know—they haven't they'll return to normal productivity, and I, I do hope we're wrong in that sense. But I—I I, I think one of the most, at least from the range side, I think one of the most damaging things that can occur is you know kind of a failure to recognize right the the impeding impacts of decisions made during these drought years you know at least the data i can find is relatively clear that um if our grazing management and our range condition are good going into a drought you know and we take care of things during a drought then following the drought we can even keep grazing those pastures and again, as long as our grazing's moderate and we're taking care of them, that within two years, we're back to normal productivity and everything's fine. But when we start stacking multiple years together, this is where we don't have a lot of good data. Number one, because this is almost impossible to recreate any other way than just living through it and then to collect the data. So it's a little bit hard for researchers to capture this, but what we don't know is if we stack two and three years of drought together, what does that mean kind of for your long-term productivity? I know looking at some long-term forage production data, I think it's safe to say that that productivity returns, but we just don't really know how long it takes in some cases for it to return to kind of normal. Um, so if you're, for example, let's say that we're, we're in our second, third year of this, 
and let's say we're practicing normal grazing practices like we were pre-drought. You know, what, what is the, I guess, what is the, what is the likelihood of that bouncing back after a normal year? Well, I mean, what's your carrying capacity at that yeah, point? I think when you say normal, I think we might want to define normal because right. I think, I think the big thing that happens during drought is forage becomes limited. I think there's, uh, there's initially a, a desire to just figure out how to get through it, right? And so maybe we're willing to graze a little bit heavier than we normally would in a normal year, you know, just to get through. And while I can understand the justification for that, I think that kind of sets us up for the, you know, kind of the a really bad scenario. Because if it's just a single year drought, mm -hmm. then we'll be okay, right? Because right. the following year we turn to normal or above normal or, you know, something and, and we'll recover. But I think when we go into multiple year droughts, that's where we really have to sit down and take a hard look at our approach because, um, and I really saw this play out in 2011, 2012 in Oklahoma, because if you come in and use all of your forage in that first year of drought and you get ready in the following year, you're fine. But if you come in and used every last stem of grass in that first year of drought, and then you start a second year of drought, now you're really in a pickle because you have absolutely zero room for error within your management at that point. I think the other thing that kind of going back to the title of our presentation today is compounding. I think the compounding effect here is you push the range. And if you push the range, that means you've pushed your cattle. Right. So in the year that the first year of drought, if you push your cattle and maybe you lose a body condition score, your breedbacks maybe a 70% instead of 80, 90% where you want it, but hey, you got through, but then you enter that second year, again, you're seeing reduced forage production. Right. Again, you're seeing, so pushing your animals now, I think, well, this question for you, does it, what does that look like in that second year of drought? Well, I think that second year of drought, you're exactly right. I think you're starting to see some of those, you're more able to identify the susceptible animals because they may have got through there that first year with your management but a lot of times even with your management that second year of that that real distress on them you're going to start seeing them fall out so i mean i i think it, it really is a compounding effect because you lose range you lose grazing the market affects you and then you're bringing these animals in increasing production costs and hoping of you know, maintaining that productivity, but the reality is more likely you're going to lose some of that productivity just because of the, the nature of the system. You know, those animals aren't really meant to, I mean, they're, they're grazing animals. They, they, they're ruminants. They, they, they do better out. You know, this isn't a, a quick finishing process where they're going to go in and then they're out of the system. This is a, this is a, a strategy where we're essentially bringing them in, we're supplementing them, and we want them to go back out onto their natural system after. And I think that's where, and we see this with, with bulls too. You know, for example, we, we, we have these bulls that are developed on a very high nutrition plane. You know, and they look great, they're productive, but that's not the world they live in. You know, we expect them to go out on range and do their job. And a lot of times when they, they come off that test, they go on range, which might be a, a drought influenced range. They, they lose multiple body condition scores and then they lose productivity. So then you run into a situation where you have them that whole next year, you're increasing the, the, the maintenance costs on those guys just to get them ready for that next year. And more than likely, you know, they're not, not going to be as productive as they were initially or, or, or probably should have been. So I guess, 
you know, one of the things that I keep hearing and one of the things that I agree with whole, wholeheartedly is, you know, kind of what Dr. Larson, what you were talking about was, you know, doing management for resiliency. You know, we, we have to, to sustain, we have to be resilient through this, but we have to be making, you know, the decisions, understanding those compounding effects from not only the year before, but potentially the year after. Because like you said, you know, this, this might be something, this might not be our last year of this. No, I think, I think that's the hard part of the prediction. And I need to back up because I think I often overlook other issues with drought. I often just talk about the loss of forage. But in Utah, one of our biggest challenges from a management side is cattle distribution or sheep, you know, animal distribution, whether we're talking sheep or cattle. And so the problem is, is in a drought year, we also start drawing water sources up, which oh, means yeah. Yeah. you may have forage some forage available somewhere on your range, but then you don't have <laughs> the water to carry those animals. Right. And so then the question comes, do we haul water? And, and I, I think the knee-jerk response is, yeah, we're always going to haul water. But then, as we know, water hauling can be incredibly time-consuming and incredibly expensive, especially with rising fuel costs. <laughs> so, Dr. Larson, how would you view water hauling in this? I mean, what's a good way to help the listeners think about or what should they consider when they think about hauling water? Because I think from one end you're thinking, well, yeah, I'm going to haul water because there's forage out there on the range that my animals can can utilize. And so I need to get water out there so I can put them out there. But are there additional considerations in that decision? Well, I think I think one thing we need to clear up first is, you know, I think a lot of people associate water and beef production as I got a stock tank. You know, I got a well, I got something pumping water. But the reality is a lot of places they're digging out dry tanks and collecting water Absolutely. throughout the year. So they have a water source. So those are the guys who are hauling water. And usually these are very remote areas that are hard to get to. And they might, like you said, there might be forests there, but what's the cost or the potential economic impact of saying, I'm gonna fill up here at my workstation. Well, I've heard gonna, some making round trips of over hundred miles right. to and haul that water. Because it's not a one day, a one, one, I'm gonna do this once a week. Yeah. You know, this is a multiple trip deal. So, yeah, so I mean, they're going hundred miles. I just say four dollars a mile, right? Oh, geez. I mean, so so this is when producers really need to be doing a, a kind of an internal benefit cost analysis, right? First, I think I think we can estimate the cost of hauling that water pretty close, right? We know what the labor is. We know what that fuel is going to cost us. We're definitely if we're if we're taking a semi into some of these areas, there's going to be repairs. Right? Sure. Those are not easy miles. Absolutely. And and so I think I think we can quantify those costs really easy. The benefits, right? Why, why are we doing that? Why are we hauling that water? Cheap forage. Cheap forage, right? So then we got to just do some internal calculation to say, this is what it's saving me to haul that water, right? So if it's, if that savings of hauling that water is greater than the, than the cost of, of feeding additional forage, that's a good decision. But you better be able to make that decision based on numbers, not just, you know what, there's forage out there, I'm taking it, right? Because it may be costing you more than it's worth. Well, then my question would be, especially in a in a water stressed situation where those animals know that water is getting low, are they really going to utilize that forage effectively? Are they going to venture out knowing that you know the water source is now depleted and might not be 
<laughs> I don't. I don't know other than I. <laughs> I, I was just curious because you know, like around water sources, they'll graze that down to the dirt. Yeah. And you know, if they're if it's already limited forage source out there and there's no water, are, are they going to vent from just grazing behavior? Right. Well, I think the one thing that water hauling does give you is it gives you more flexibility to move those animals around. Because if if you're relying on a pump, which we we've even seen springs and things dry up in years right. like this, that that lot cause you to haul water, and so the one advantage which is what a lot of the sheep folks have been doing for years, is then you can haul water where you need it. So in some ways, it would give you some flexibility to avoid what you're talking about. Because you're right, generally speaking, if we're talking about a multiple year drought, the first forage that's gone is the water, or the, the forage close to that original water point. So I think that's the other consideration, is if I'm now flexible and can haul water, am I better off hauling it and putting it in trough somewhere where I can select where they're grazing based right. on this water distribution rather than just dumping it into the same dirt tank. Because you're right, where we've had little or no forage production in a given year, that's going to be depleted pretty quickly. Okay. And so I think you can kind of think of that two ways. One is using this as an opportunity to maybe use parts of your range that normally don't see as much use. In fact, a good example is there was a producer in southern Utah in 2018 or 2018 that um, got into a drought and he was able to use kind of the back corner of his allotment because in normal years because of water distribution the back corner of that allotment wasn't getting any use now it cost him money to haul water in and he had to have a rider to keep his animals back in there per the agency's request but the bottom line is he was able to go ahead and use that forage because the water hauling gave him a little more flexibility so it, it, it's kind of a blessing and a curse, but um, I think you could mitigate the concerns you raised about. Right. Um, it's just an economic economic consideration. Sure, at that you point know, and so I think that's the, um, you know, what I think is, you know, me being a range person, I often don't think, you know, where's the where's the point that it may be better for me to pull those animals in, feed them in a dry lot situation where I have better control over maintaining right. body condition scores. And all of that, like, where's that that break-even yeah. point in terms of, even though hay's expensive, it may be cheaper than trying to put a body condition score on them when they come back off the range. Well, I guess in, one in factor the, that we're also not considering here, if we're hauling water and we're hauling feed and it's a drought situation, our, our animals aren't the only ones out there utilizing that. No. So you're, you're going to have other factors coming in and utilizing resources that we're putting out there. So that's something that we probably, from an economic range and productivity side, we probably tend to, I, I, I'm sure a lot of people acknowledge it, but probably not to the, the extent that it's probably going to be utilized outside our production system. Well, it, it's interesting, and that's a good point, Matt, because I don't hear a lot of concerns about competing uses on rangelands, and I'm talking other animals that are eating that forage, right. except when we get into a drought year. Because right. during, during <laughs> average or above average precipitation years, there's enough forage to go around. So there isn't a lot of competition, generally speaking, and so people are it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. But in a year like this, then there's perceived and real concerns over, hey, there's also, you know, 500 head of elk that are using this rangeland, or in some case we have bison and mule deer and pronghorn. And, you know, that gets kind of complicated because they all right. eat different things at different times, but it's something that needs to be accounted for. I think the other realistic thing that has to be accounted for just in terms of trying to be realistic about your view of what's happening on the landscape is if you're operating on private land then you have the luxury of right. deciding 
well, I don't, you know, I don't care about elk or I don't care about mule deer or sage grouse or bison or anything else. But if you're, if you're grazing public land, Mm -hmm. then those decisions I'll have to factor in because it is multiple use, right? And so sometimes that's a, a hard reality with public land allotments, even though there's some advantages is in a drought year, you know, there may be other things that take priority on that forage than, than livestock in some situations. So I guess I'm going to ask you a question that everyone asks you. So when should we begin planning for drought? <laughs> <laughs> well, now's a little bit late. Um, yeah. I think this is something that we're hoping to do with some of these podcasts is even the one we're having today is really the time for decisions is probably already passed for a lot of these decisions, except some of the ones Dr. Larson was talking about and water hauling. But I think what we hope is that, you know, we're giving you some things to think about so that you can think about these before the next drought. Right. Um, Because I think if you wait till May, you know, we're basically in the month or a couple of weeks out from being in May, it's a little bit late to be making some of these drought decisions. I think, you know, at least in terms of the rangeland, those decisions, you kind of need to know how you're going to handle that beforehand. And I guess back to Dr. Larson, how would you, how would you handle feed decisions looking ahead versus trying to deal with it in the moment? What, what would be your approach there? I think a lot of that depends on your location, right? I think I think most producers know how easy it is to find hay for their area. You know, some areas you're going to be competing with a lot of other people. Maybe you have access to a lot, a lot of hay. I think I think that geographic location is key. And and like we said, who's competing for that hay, right? Mm-hmm. And I think uh, if if you live in an area where there's very very few competitors and few buyers, you know, you, you probably be okay, but if everybody's trying to buy that same hay, it's going to be tough. And if there's very little hay, right? If you live in an area that's the water's already tight, and so they're getting one, maybe two crops off, you already know that everybody's going to be fine for that that same hay. And so, and and also, if you're a hay producer, right? You're thinking, man, do I send this to the export market? Do I, right? right. You're trying to maximize the value, right? So there's these competing forces here where. The hay producer is trying to maximize their value, and the the cattle producer is trying to minimize their cost. And so it could it could it could get ugly in some situations, but that's just the the market forces at work. But I think understanding how easy it is that you can access hay, I think uh, that's I think that's key, right? That, well, I mean, it goes back to kind of some of the things we talked about earlier in terms of looking at your whole production system and understanding the upstream and downstream effects of of certain decisions you're making, but also the scenarios that are going to affect those decisions. You know, a lot of times when, when, when I talk to producers and they say, you know, well, I'm in calving, when should I plan for calving? Well, you should be planning for calving during breeding. You know, you should you should have those scenarios kind of worked out and say, okay, these, these are some of the challenges I may face. So you're not doing exactly what we're talking about coming into the situation and saying, okay, I'm, I'm in a severe drought. My forage resources, my range resources are getting really depleted i need to start planning to buy hay now you know that that should be a a i mean what's the word forecasting yeah type of type of thing that we should try to be maybe start implementing not only for the drought knowing that maybe next year we might be in it again so maybe we start planning for it now and saying this is what we're going to need these are the challenges we're going to face you know this is some of the decisions i may have to make going forward so when you enter into it, you're not going, well, I got to make these decisions now and it's an unoptimal time to do so. 
So it just the thought occurred to me, Dr. Larson, would there be a situation that may, I mean, you're talking only one to two cuttings of your hay. So our typical beef production system or, you know, sheep production system in Utah is send them to the mountain or the range for the summer for the most part, bring them home in the wintertime. And in the meantime, you've put up a bunch of hay, but is there a point where it may not be worth harvesting one or two cuttings of hay? And, you know, because if you have animals that have to come off your range, could it potentially be cheaper just to pasture them out on your on your hay versus harvesting it? Like, what would that oh, yeah. break-even point look like? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a, that's a good point. question. I, that's a, I don't know what that – you'd have to – yeah, that might that might be a, a solution, right? For some of these that have that, instead of going through the the expense of putting it up, right? Why put it up? Just let it, just use it for for grazing for your animals. What, what's the average cost to to cut hay and put it up? Like, what's the average per acre cost? Is there kind of a general rule of thumb? Ah, uh, per cutting, right? I'm thinking you're probably. 60 bucks, 75 bucks an acre, right? To put that up when all said and done, right? Per cutting, per, right? So I'm, I'm thinking, right? If you're already sure, that might be a, that might be a spreadsheet that we need to quickly put together is, should we, should we bail that up or graze it? That's a, well, we can follow that up on May 12th, right? We have May 12th, we have yeah. another podcast schedule. We can, we can have that ready to go May 12th. So $60 yeah. an acre, is that, that normal year? Cause, are we are we taking into account that increased diesel price and it might bump that up a little bit, right? Okay. It, it's it might bump that up. Well, I mean, diesel, twine, yeah, no, all that stuff is going to petroleum based, right? It's going to be more expensive this right. year. Right. Bottom line. Well, I, I just I often think we overlook because to me, I to get through these drought scenarios, we have to be really creative about every aspect of our right. operation. We've already talked about you know how do we preserve our genetics. But, you know, we, we often overlook the fact that we have an incredibly productive resource that's somewhat insulated from drought, even though it will still feel the effects of drought in our irrigated, you know, hay meadows, pastures, et cetera. And so, you know, I've always wondered, you know, how many animals could you get through if you had to just pull them off and, you know, not harvest your hay and feed them out in a, in a given year, but. All right. No, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think that's a perfect yeah. follow-up, right? That we can bring some actual numbers back and say, hey, let's look at this decision. Because because I think I think you hit the nail on the head. You got to be creative, right? I think you got to look for, mm-hmm. for ways to, to come through that. And I think I think that field, one, one word I've noticed that we keep throwing two words, right? Resilient and flexible. Mm-hmm. I think when you look at that that field of yours, not just as a as a alfalfa field, right? But to use it as flexibility, right? As a buffer zone. I think we may need to change some of our point of view and say, hey, we may need to reshape how we view that that field. It's not just, we're not just gonna build it no matter what, right? right. I think we're fascinated with bailing hay sometimes. <laughs> I think we are, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, well, I think it, it just, it's, uh, you almost, it, well, it's just what you do, right? That's just the mode of operation. That's the right. standard operating procedures. We send cows off in the summer while they're grazing on the mountain. We're putting up hay. Then they come home in the winter and we feed them that hay. It's, and while that works in a lot of years, I think years like this force us outside of that kind of range of operation, if you will. And it's good, you know, it may call for some, some non-traditional ways of getting us through those. All right. Well, I think we covered quite a bit and, you know, I, don't, I know we didn't announce the live uh, 
until last minute. But um, obviously, if you have any questions for us, you know, we'll be posting this on uh, not only Facebook, but we'll have it on Podbean. Uh, well, it'll be on the USU Facebook page. Um, I'll see if I can send it over to Dr. Thacker for the range page as well. Uh, so if you have any questions, you know, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, technically, we work for you, so we're, we're here to help out in any way we can. Uh, we're going to try to be more consistent with this. Uh, we're going to try to do this every, every week, um, same time. Uh, April 28th, I think, is our next planned one. And I'm not, what, what is the, the topic, Dr. Larson? We're looking at this range data that the, the Dr. Thacker has been working with. Oh, that's right. The implications of, of looking at the specific data. So we'll, we'll kind of talk about that and and once again, merge these, the economics, the animal side and the range side. So this is the forage variability data. Yeah. Okay. So I think Garcia, Matt, uh, one thing, you know, if producers ever right, right want to ask the three of us a, a question, right? If they have a strategy that they, they want to Absolutely. run by us, right? Use us as as consultants, right? Let us yeah. let us help you if there's questions or numbers that you need help with, or or even if you have an idea that's worked for you, that's yeah. flexible for you, you know, feel free to chime in and you know, yeah, this that would be great. Yeah, I think I think that's we gotta bring as many minds to the table as possible. Exactly. So with that, I'll I'll thank you all for joining us and any future questions that you might have, and hopefully we'll see you again on April twenty eighth, same time.